The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Gerald Ford. He wasn't elected president. He wasn't even elected vice president. But this all-around nice guy that everyone loved just happened to be in the right place at the right time. When Nixon resigned and Ford stepped in, he inherited a huge mess, both at home and abroad. So just a month after taking office, his first move was pardoning his old boss, something that was widely criticized then, but actually may have been his greatest legacy. The unelected president who helped the nation heal just when it needed it most. Mr. Nice Guy, POTUS number 38. He's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us dig into our 38th president is Dr. Scott Kaufman. He's a Francis Marion University Board of Trustees research scholar, joining the faculty there in 2001. He's helped put together a dozen books on diplomatic, military, and presidential history. One of the titles, called Ambition, Pragmatism, and Party, a political biography of Gerald R. Ford, is the one we want to focus on today. Scott, thanks for taking the time to join us here on American POTUS. Well, thank you, and I look forward to talking about Gerald Ford. Scott, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this book. Let's, let's start with Ford's early years. How did his family and his school experiences affect his personality and his direction in life? Sure. Um, now, one thing um, I should make clear here is that it's important to remember that Gerald Ford was not born Gerald Ford. He was born Leslie Lynch King Jr., um, but his mother, Dorothy, left King. He was an abusive husband, physically abusive, mentally abusive, even threatened to kill her and their newborn child. Uh, she ended up divorcing King in 1914 and in 1917 married Gerald Ford, who became obviously Gerald Ford Sr. because her son now became eventually became Gerald Ford Jr. And it's interesting, by the way, that he didn't even know that Gerald Ford Sr. was not as, or didn't fully realize that Gerald Ford Sr. was not his biological father until, until his teenage years. So with, with that in mind, um, so when we talk about Ford's parents, I want to focus on Gerald Ford Sr. and, and, and Dorothy, his mother. Um, they had an enormous impact on him. Uh, his mother taught him strength and perseverance when facing really terrible odds. I mean, Here's an individual who gets a divorce at a time when divorce was frowned upon, especially when a child is involved. Um, his, his father taught him to think for himself, to love sports, to work hard, and to seek financial well-being with as little support as possible from the federal government. You, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Uh, they both taught him to, to play by the rules, and they also taught him self-restraint. Uh, one thing about about Ford, and it was similar to his biological father, is he had a terrible temper. And, and his parents taught him, you know, calm down, relax, control your emotions. And school reinforced many of those values. Um, for instance, playing football in high school, which was a, a sport he loved, uh, he, he learned, don't get upset when things go wrong. It's going to happen. And just pick yourself up and prepare for the next play. Uh, play by the rules. Uh, be a team player and, and understand that losing is not the end of the world. And also understand that if you do something wrong and your coach says, here's what you need to do so you don't do it again, listen to that person, learn from that criticism, improve your game, improve yourself. And school also, in addition to football, school played a role in his ambitiousness. In football, he wanted to become a starter. In school, he, he understands, as he had from, from football itself, the value of hard work. Uh, he once said, the harder you work, the luckier you are. And there's no doubt that Ford was a hard worker, whether it was in, on the gridiron or in the classroom. 
And so he's always trying to work hard to do well on the gridiron, to do well in his classes. Now, there is a story, and I'm not sure I agree with it, but a story told by his future wife, Betty, that when he was in high school, he won a trip to Washington, D.C., and while there, he became enthralled with the capital, enthralled with politics, and that's what wanted him. That's what led him to seek to be to seek a career in politics. I'm not sure I agree with that, but um, it's possible that that trip may have had at least some impact on him. Yeah, it's fascinating hearing about his temper. You know, we've talked to several. Other historians on here talk about great leaders like Washington or Lincoln, uh, certainly Dwight Eisenhower, who, as young men, had tempers. And part of their greatness uh, was being able to control that temper, not always, but usually being able to keep it under control. Exactly, exactly. Because that can throw you off your game. And, you know, if if you say something or do something wrong at the wrong time. Uh, that can really cause yeah. problems, not only for your advisors, but but for you in a public sense. Yeah, I'm going to personally try to take that to heart, but I'm not always <laughs> successful. So, uh, so Gerald Ford was elected to Congress in 1948. He was a moderate Republican. So can you define for us what being a moderate Republican meant at that time? And what were his main areas of interest as he entered the House of Representatives? Sure. And there are actually two other terms I use in the book. One's a Midwestern conservative. And I also talk about him being a pragmatic conservative. Um, what I mean by these terms uh, are, first of all, when it, he, he's someone who takes a political position that's not as far right as the conservative wing of the Republican Party and not as far left as the liberal wing of that party are, as, are the position of, of many Democrats. So, for instance, uh, liberal Republicans tend to be kind of similar to or, or admire the progressive Republicans of the early 1900s, your Theodore Roosevelt's, your William Taft's. Um, they are willing to accept government intervention to help Americans economically. These are individuals who largely endorse the New Deal. They believe in an interventionist foreign policy. They want America to be involved in world affairs. Conservatives would be more like your Republicans of the 1920s into the 30s, your Coolidge's, Harding's, Hoover's, uh, favor smaller government, a balanced budget, deregulation of the economy. They felt the New Deal was socialistic, and they tended to lean toward isolationism. Moderates are in between. Like conservatives, they favor a balanced budget. They favor government deregulation of the economy. They want to limit the size of government. But they're not wholly opposed to the New Deal. Their biggest problem with the New Deal is they felt that they could run it better than Democrats could. Uh, And they also stand behind an interventionist foreign policy. They want America to be involved in world affairs. And one thing to point out about Ford, uh, and this is why I call him a pragmatic conservative, is that he's not an ideologue. He's someone who realizes that to achieve whatever goals he wants to achieve – Sometimes you have to stand against members of your own party, and sometimes you have to reach across party lines. This, I think, provides some ideas to his main areas of interest, but some specifics. I mean, obviously, he wants to support Republican presidents. He wants to strengthen his party. Uh, He endorses a strong defense. He wants to contain communism abroad. He wants to restrict spending on welfare programs. He wants to balance the budget. And he wants to limit the size and power of the federal government. In fact, he once said that a government powerful enough to give you everything you want is a government powerful enough to take everything from you. So those are the kinds of things he was talking about, focusing on. As I hear you describe his philosophy, it reminds me a lot of Howard Baker. I used to uh, be director of the Howard Baker Center in Tennessee, and he definitely was that kind of pragmatic conservative, very willing to reach across party lines. And with that core set of values, but uh, definitely right there in the middle. Uh, In in 1964, Ford became House Minority Leader. So moving up the ranks, was he successful as Minority Leader? And how would you characterize his leadership style? Well, I guess one of the questions is how do you define success? Right, right, sure. Um, I mean, the first four years of his, what, uh, eight, no, tenure, tenure in the House – uh, as minority leaders saw Republicans gain seats, um, he was one of the first pe- persons to raise the issue of guns and butter and criticizing Lyndon Johnson, saying, "You can't pay for both 
the Great Society and the War in Vietnam without raising taxes. Uh, he certainly worked to help Richard Nixon get his many of his policies passed. But I think that by Ford's own admission, and, and, and again, when I say admission here, he didn't obviously didn't come out and say this. But if you look at what Ford really wanted to achieve as minority leader, I think he would admit he was not successful in two key areas. First of all, he wanted Republicans to gain control of the House of Representatives, if not Congress, and for himself to become Speaker. He never achieved that goal. The other thing he wanted to do was to break what he considered an unholy alliance between the Republican Party and Southern Democrats. He believed Southern Democrats um, took positions that were not helpful enough when it came to containing communism abroad. But what especially concerned him about this alliance is that it made the Republican Party look like they were anti-civil rights, and that's not who Ford was. Yet Ford himself never fully broke up that alliance. In fact, many times he found his own party when he was minority leader aligning itself, allying itself with, with Southern Democrats to achieve their goals, uh, whether, be, whether it was um, higher taxes to pay for the war in Vietnam or attacking Johnson's anti-crime proposals. In terms of his leadership style, I would say it was the same as it had been when, from the point he entered the House of Representatives. And this is something that people I interviewed who knew him as minority leader, such as Robert Dole, uh, confirmed, uh, that he was someone who said, look, my door is open to anyone who wants to come see me, and I'm willing to listen to all sides. That's, that was really important to him. And there's one other thing about him with regard to leadership style, and it's something that haunted him throughout his political career, and it's something that I, I point out in the book more than once. He had a really, really difficult time providing a vision to the American people of what it was he wanted how, – how he wanted to move the country along, where he, saw the, yeah, where he saw the country being three, four, five, ten years from now. He was really good at offering policy proposals, but in terms of explaining how, what the Republican Party was hoping to achieve in the long run, how these policies all fit under a larger vision, he had a very difficult time there. Was that just a function of his personality or um, the ideas he held? Why do you think that was the case? Well, I think it's a couple of things. Um one of his top aides, Robert Hartman, said that you know it took a time sometimes for to, for Ford to to grasp an idea, and it's not that he was dumb by no means was he, but he liked to kind of mull things over for a while to hear all sides and think about what he heard before he he made a decision. But he also admitted Ford also admitted that he really wasn't into these catchphrases. Um, when he was president, for instance, one of his aides said, why don't you talk about the new realism? That'll be your vision for America because it's broad enough that it can include domestic and foreign policy. And Ford said, I was never really into those kinds of catchphrases. And maybe he should have been because that could have – he could have used that as kind of that umbrella, that vision to fit his various policy proposals into. Well, we know in 1973, he gets to a new position when Spiro Agnew resigns. He's asked to assume oh, yes. the vice presidency in yes. the midst of not only the Agnew resignation, but the growing Watergate scandal. Mm -hmm. So why, why was he chosen and why did he accept that vice presidential position? Well, President Nixon said that he had four criteria in choosing a person to replace Agnew. First of all, the person had to be loyal to the Republican Party. Second of all, the person had to be qualified to be president of the United States if it came to that. Thirdly, he wanted someone with an ideological point of view similar to his own. And last but not least, Nixon said, I want somebody acceptable to Congress because we have to remember that Congress would have to confirm the nomination. And Ford fit every bill. So, so he's the guy. So why did Ford accept? Well, I would suggest three reasons. First of all, Nixon's a friend. Uh, 
Nixon was one of the first people to introduce himself to Ford when Ford was elected to Congress in 1946. Um, and in fact, in 1960, when Nixon ran for the presidency, one of the people, one of the names that was thrown around as a possible running mate was Gerald Ford. And Ford never outright rejected taking that position. So he had thought about that before being Nixon's VP. Second of all, the country needs a vice president. And Ford believed this is a way to serve his country. I mean, he had served the country as a member of the military. He served, he's been serving his country as a member of Congress. He can now serve the country as its number two, number two uh, person. But I think a third reason why Ford accepted the position is he's dejected. He, he's distraught. Here's a guy who becomes minority leader in 1964 and wants to become Speaker of the House, which requires Republicans to capture control of the House representatives. 1966 midterms, Democrats still control the House. 1968, same outcome. 1970, same outcome. Then comes 1972. In 1972, the Democrats run George McGovern as their nominee for the presidency. McGovern ran, runs a terrible campaign. I mean, he gets trounced by Nixon in that year. Ford was very confident that McGovern was so bad as a candidate that would have an impact down ballot and that finally Republicans would gain control of the House and finally he would become Speaker. It doesn't happen. And so he says to himself and he says to his wife, Betty, look, this was our best chance. I don't see Republicans getting control of the House in 1974. I don't see it happening in 1976. So what I think I'm going to do is I will just continue being minority leader through Nixon's second term. And come 1976, I'm going to call it quits. I'm going to retire. Well, what happens? 1974, all of a sudden he's offered the vice presidential position. Um, well, you know you're not going to become speaker. You now have an opportunity to be the number two person in the country to serve the nation in that position and serve it with a friend of yours. Why not end your political career that way? Mm -hmm. So I think that's another reason why he did it. Do you think he was aware of the of the depth of the Watergate conspiracy at that time? I mean, that was did he go into it knowing anything about uh, President Nixon's possible complicity in the cover that type of thing? Uh, it's interesting. One of Ford's greatest faults is he could be very naive about people. He once said that he believed no, no matter how bad a person seemed, there had to be good in them. And so what he would do is look for the good, but in the process would often, over times overlook the bad. And I think that naivete was true here. Nixon was telling the American people, his jowl, you know, his jowl shaking, I am not a crook. And, and uh, you know, he told Ford, I'm not involved in Watergate, even though the evidence was there. So on the one hand, yes, Ford was kind of distancing himself from Nixon as the evidence grew that Nixon might have been involved, but he continued to believe Nixon when Nixon said, I'm not part of this scandal. Then came a meeting on August 1st of 1974 when Nixon's chief of staff, Al Haig, comes to Ford and says, I need to tell you something. There's some very damaging evidence against Richard Nixon, and uh, it could lead it could mean, mean that you could become president of the United States. And it was only at that point that Ford truly became aware of just how serious the situation was. He became aware that Nixon was involved in Watergate, and he became aware that Nixon had lied to him, and it really, really stung. That must have felt like the world was falling on, down on him at that point. Yes. That, that, that. I know, um, again, I, I don't mean to keep bringing up Howard Baker, but he, he told me, you know, he was vice chairman of the Senate Watergate Committee of when he went over to meet with Nixon, kind of some of that naivete of, of that he was an old political friend, but realizing in that conversation with Nixon that something more was going on um, and kind of that disappointment uh, and deciding, he said, to follow, you know, follow the evidence at that point. So I think a lot of people um, um, were surprised and, and disappointed with that. So he enters the presidency after Nixon's resignation, August 9th of 74. That Those were horrible circumstances to enter the, the presidency. Yes. So how did he establish his team? Who were those main advisors and what were his immediate priorities? Well, I th <laughs> this is one of the most difficult problems Ford faced. I mean, generally a president has time. 
Yeah, you, sure. You, yeah, you get elected in the, in the first Tuesday, November, and you have until January 20th of the following year to get your team together. Ford doesn't have that luxury. So he decides what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep the, the main players in their positions. I want Henry Kissinger, who he admired to begin with, to stay as Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. I want William Simon to stay on as Secretary of the Treasury. I want James Schlesinger, who Ford eventually got rid of, uh, to serve as Secretary of Defense. Um, I'm going to keep Al Haig on as Chief of Staff, although he changes Haig's title to Coordinator because he he wants to he feels the Chief of Staff restricts too much who has access to the President. Um, but Ford did bring in his own people. Uh, most notably Robert Hartman as chief speechwriter. Um, and one of the problems Ford had throughout his presidency was trying to get these teams of people to work together. Hartman, for instance, couldn't stand uh, who he referred to as the Praetorian Guard, these Nixon holdovers who he felt was were keeping Ford from achieving his goals. Um, so trying to trying to work some of that out was proved one of Ford's difficulties throughout his 895 days in office. Um, immediate priorities. <laughs> uh, how long of a time? How much time do I have to go through? All <laughs> all right. uh, let's see here. Um, deal with an economy that is being racked by stagflation. Deal with an energy crisis. Try to figure out what to do about South Vietnam, whose future looked bleak. Um, continue Nixon's efforts and Kissinger's efforts to promote peace in the Middle East. Continue the Nixon administration's efforts to promote arms control, negotiate to promote arms control with the Soviet Union. Uh, within just a matter of what a week or so after taking office, Ford has to deal with a military crisis involving Greece and Turkey, who are fighting over Cyprus. And then, to his chagrin, on top of all of this, Ford had to, has to add to his list whether to pardon Richard Nixon. So, a whole slew of things that he's got to, he has suddenly thrown on his plate. So it sounds like he was pretty bored and not much to do those first, <laughs> no. first few weeks in the office. <laughs> let, let's tu let's turn to that pardon. He issued that pardon on September eighth of seventy four. So not really less, just under a month after he came into office. What was his process in making that pardon decision, and why did why did he think it was the right thing to do? I think in answering this question, I, I want to jump back to that August first meeting. Uh, when Haig meets with Ford, lets Ford know that there's some evidence against Nixon that Ford should be prepared to become president of the United States. And it's all through that conversation that Haig mentions to Ford that he would have the power to pardon Nixon. Ford does not shut the door to that immediately. And when Ford's aides, including Robert Hartman and Jack Marsh, found out that he had not closed the door to pardon, they were they went ballistic. And they said to him, how can you do that? I mean, Haig's going to go to Nixon. He's going to tell Nixon that you didn't close the idea to a pardon. Nixon's going to think, therefore, you're going to pardon him. You've got to call Haig and tell him a pardon is off the table. And it took several days before Ford did that. Um, so why does Ford suddenly change his mind off of the pardon? Uh, I would suggest several reasons. One is that he was concerned about whether Nixon could get a fair trial from an impartial jury. I mean, everyone knew about Watergate. They know about Nixon's complicity. They know that he lied to them, the American people. Can, he, can Nixon really get a fair trial? Second thing is uh, Ford had a friend of his and a lawyer named Benton Becker uh, go out and meet with Nixon uh, and – Ford asked Becker, so how does Nixon look? And Becker said, looks awful. I don't think he's going to live much longer. So why put Nixon, who may not live much longer, through a trial um, when, that would probably, when he's probably going to die anyway? And finally, and I, I think this may be the most important reason, is Ford was frustrated. He thought coming into the, uh, into the Oval Office – that he could get the country focusing on what he saw as more the most important issues, such as energy, such as the economy, such as arms control talks. Instead, in his first interview or his first press conference, the media is asking asks him lots of questions about Nixon. Are you going to pardon him? He's going to go on trial. And to Ford, why are you asking me these questions? This is not important. Economy, energy, arms control, these are the important issues. 
So Ford decides, okay, as far as I'm concerned, a pardon is the right thing to do. It'll save Nixon from having to go through the process of a trial that might not be fair and might literally kill him. And it will get this whole Nixon thing off my back. And by by getting it off my back, I can then get Americans to focus on what I see as these more important issues. Of course, pardoning Nixon only 30 days after taking after assuming the presidency haunted Ford throughout his time his time as president. And certainly when he was uh, running again for the presidency, that was a, a topic. Oh, yes. Yeah. We, we know that the Ford presidency, you mentioned some of these uh, challenges earlier, saw the defeat of South Vietnam. Saigon fell April 30th of 1975. What had Ford's positions been on the Vietnam War over the years? And what did he do as president when the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong invaded the South? Well, throughout his, his congressional career, Ford had been somebody who stood for containing the spread of communism, um, and he endorsed the idea of, of helping South Vietnam. But there is a caveat to that. He believed that President Johnson conducted the war in the wrong way. As far as Ford was concerned, the way to protect South Vietnam is not by sending hundreds of thousands of ground troops. It's by unleashing America's naval and air power. So blockade North Vietnam, allow the American Air Force to bomb sites such as the, the cities of Hanoi and Haiphong, which up to that point had been off limits. That's the way you win the war, not by sending in ground troops. Um, when the North invaded the South, uh, Ford had two, there were two things Ford wanted to do. One was to launch an airstrike to help the North's forces. And the other was to give South Vietnam $700 million, just over $700 million in military aid. Doing both proved ultimately impossible. We have to remember um, that Congress, even before it took, off, before Ford took office, was reasserting itself on foreign affairs. Uh, Congress had given the president, Lyndon Johnson, a pretty much a blank check to use American forces in Vietnam. We ended up mired in a war there. So in 1973, Congress passes the War Powers Resolution that places restrictions on the ability of the president to use the American military abroad. And Ford feared, if I launch air attacks against the North, I'm going to be charged with violating the War Powers Resolution. I don't need to have that kind of fight with Congress. And as for the military aid, well, Congress is going to have to approve that. And for members of Congress, not just Democrats, but even some Republicans, look, we've been there for years. We're finally getting out. We've already, we've already sunk billions of dollars into Vietnam, into South Vietnam to try to help protect it. Let's just say we did the best we could and move on to something else. On the domestic front, as you also mentioned earlier, he faced even more problems. He called his first and most urgent concern the stagflation you talked about, including an inflation rate, I think, of – what, around 12%. How, how, yeah. how did his administration on that domestic front try to address those economic woes? Uh, it had a heck of a time. Uh, stagflation was really something new. I mean, he, here's a country facing rising prices, inflation. The economy is not, is not growing very much at all, and unemployment is going up. Now, traditionally, the way you would handle these issues is you would do something about taxes. So, for instance, um, you might lower taxes in the hopes of providing people more income to spend. Now, of course, that increases the possibility of inflation, but giving more people more money to spend to stimulate economic growth. You might, for instance, increase or cut government spending. So maybe increase government spending to stimulate the economy and create jobs. Those traditional methods weren't working when it came to stagflation. And what also is causing problems for Ford is that the causes of the stagflation were numerous and complex. You have all the money spent in the Great Society in Vietnam. America's economic dominance in the world is now being challenged by nations like uh, Japan and West Germany. Productivity in America is falling. Wages are still high. And we're also heavily reliant on foreign energy sources, which ties into these economic troubles. Uh, some of your listeners may have uh, vivid memories of the oil embargo of 1973 to 74. 
Um, yeah, the OPEC oil embargo, which saw oil prices in America jump up some 300%. And of course, anything that uses oil or gasoline, anything that has to be transported is going to go up in price. Um, and then just to add to the complexity, any kind of legislation Ford wants to get through Congress is going to have to be approved by a Congress controlled by Democrats who oftentimes don't see eye to eye with him. Ford tried all kinds of solutions to deal with this issue. Initially, he talked about uh, raising taxes and corporation on married couples and corporations who made more than a certain amount of money, uh, deregulating industry. He talked of a voluntary um, program called Whip Inflation Now that would encourage Americans to conserve energy. That didn't really work. So then he tries a new set of proposals that include now cutting taxes instead of raising them, um, raising fees on imported oil. Uh, lifting price controls on domestically produced oil, imposing windfall profits tax on oil companies because now they're going to make more money off those oil, higher oil prices. Those proposals come under attack not only from conservative Republicans but from Democrats. In late 1975, Ford ends up signing a bill that largely gave Democrats what they wanted, uh, which – essentially called for more uh, tax cuts that weren't as great as what he wanted um, and that did nothing to impose any – nothing that stopped any additional spending by Congress. So Congress could impose – could begin some new programs, for instance, to stimulate the, stimulate the economy. Ford hadn't wanted that because he felt it would – cost too much. Uh, he also signed legislation on energy in the fall of 1975. This legislation was, again, largely what Democrats wanted. We do begin to see the United, the U.S. economy improve as we get into late 75, early 76. But then in the fall of 76, the economy starts going sour again, and it plays one of the roles in why Ford doesn't win another term. So it's very complex, and Ford, you know, Ford's trying all kinds of different things. The very fact that he would call, for instance, for raising taxes then cutting them, he's accused of being a flip flopper. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, he really had trouble coming to grips with it. And I should point out, by the way, I've also written some stuff on the Carter administration. Jimmy Carter had the same kind of problems trying to come to grips with all these issues. Uh, I will remind our listeners also, we recently had Jay Hakes on as a guest. Oh, uh, great. Spe speaking about energy policies of Nixon, Ford, and Carter and how they tried to grapple with those those challenges. And I will also note that my family very dutifully had a whip inflation now button when I was a kid. I remember I wish I still had that button uh, that they had put out as part of the uh, whip inflation now campaign. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so l let's step out of the chronology just for a second, because I, I remember, of course, as a kid watching Saturday Night Live and Chevy Chase you know, making fun, parroting uh, Gerald Ford for a man who was so athletic and intelligent. How did he come to be branded in the popular culture as this clumsy, somewhat unintelligent guy? You know, it's one of the most unfortunate things about Ford. Uh, here's a guy who was a star football player in high school who played football well enough in college that he was offered op an opportunity to play professionally. He skied. He swam. He got into Yale Law School and did very well there. What hurt him was a belief that dated at least as far back as President Johnson. Uh, President Johnson, who said that Gerald Ford is so dumb, he can't chew gum and pass gas at the same time. Uh, now, he did not say pass gas, by the way. He used a single word. I'm not sure. I don't want to get in trouble. We don't want to upset American POTUS so, listeners, right? Yes, yes. We used a different word. Um, and there were, there were people in the media, like Richard Reeves, who, who – took a kind of a similar position that Ford just isn't very bright. Well, we should jump, let's jump into 1975. Ford flies to Vienna, Austria for a meeting with Egyptian President Anwar Sadat to talk about a variety of issues related to the Middle East. It's been raining. Ford is walking down the stairs of Air Force One to the tarmac, and he slips in the stairs because they're wet, and he slides all the way down. That image gets placed nationally, and it seemed to confirm what people like Johnson said. I mean, 
this guy can't even walk down a flight of stairs without just stumbling. And of course, as you mentioned, TV, the TV show Saturday Night Live piled on by having Chevy Chase portray Ford as this kind but bumbling fool. And in fact, I use one of Chevy Chase's skits in, in one of my classes to, to illustrate this point about how Ford was depicted. I think, and this is something I argue in the book, is that Ford's physical unsteadiness came to be tied to his intellect. That you have a guy who's physically unsteady and that reflects his intellectual vacuousness. He can't walk straight. He can't think straight. And that's why he makes these awful decisions. This is why he pardons Richard Nixon. This is why he can't solve our economic troubles. This is why he makes a terrible gaffe about Poland in the second debate with Jimmy Carter. He's just not a – he's a nice guy, but he's not very intelligent. Yeah. Very unfortunate for sure. In, in that 1976 campaign where he made that gaffe – Ronald Reagan almost defeated Ford in the Republican primaries, and then we know Ford went down in defeat to Jimmy Carter in the general election. What factors led to Ford's vulnerability at first to, to Reagan and then his ultimate defeat by, by Carter? Well, let's start with Reagan. Um, I think there are a number of things working against Ford. Ford didn't realize as early as he should have just how influential his party's conservative wing, personified in Reagan, had become. That hurt him. We also have to think about experience in a campaign. Reagan had run for the presidency in 1968. He had also been governor of California. He's run statewide campaigns. He's been involved in a national campaign. Ford had no national or even statewide experience, if you think about it. He had always run as the candidate for the 5th District of Michigan. The only reason he became president of the United States is through a series of incredible events that led him to be nominated vice president and confirmed, and then all of a sudden finds himself as president. So he's never run a national campaign before. He also lacks Reagan's experience in front of the camera. It's not that he couldn't speak in front of the camera, but Reagan was an actor by trade. He knows how to use the camera. I still remember growing up and hearing people talk about how Reagan could look into a camera and the person watching TV would say, he's talking to me directly. Reagan was, he was the great communicator. Ford wasn't as good as using the camera. What also helps Reagan is that he successfully attacks a number of Ford's policies. For instance, he says that the desire of Gerald Ford to continue Richard Nixon's policy of detente with the Soviet Union, to improve relations with the Soviets. That's a terrible policy. You can't trust the Soviets. Um, Gerald Ford was working on, uh, and, and Henry Kissinger, were working on a treaty that would turn the Panama Canal over to Panama. And in fact, one of the things that saved Reagan's campaign, because for a while there, it looked like he might be in trouble, was using Panama to his advantage and telling Americans, look, we paid for the Ameri Panama Canal. It's ours. We're going to keep it. We're not going to give it to Panama. And the fact that Ford would talk about doing that uh, upset a lot of voters in this country and helped Reagan. And of course, the pardon hurts Ford. Um, so, I mean, Ford gets the nomination, but it doesn't happen until – the convention that he's act, he's able to to seal his victory. Then he has to go in the general campaign against Carter. Um, the pardon's still stinging. There's that economic downturn I mentioned that begins to hit the country in the fall of '76. He makes that terrible gaffe in the second debate, in which he says there is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there will not be under a Ford administration, which was totally untrue. And then he doubles down. Instead of clarifying his error, what was he trying to say? You think there is there any explanation for what he was attempting to say at that point? He, he was he had actually been prepared for this, and he was going to talk about how Ford would how he his administration was going to stand strong against the Soviets, and and it came out really wrong. Yeah, it came out really really wrong. Um, and also, I think what hurt Ford is, is the same thing that hurt him as minority leader. He never provided the American people a vision of where he was going to take the country. As I mentioned, one of his aides said, why don't we talk about the new realism as our kind of our campaign slogan? And Ford never did that. So what Americans hear about are these policy proposals with no idea how they fit together. Then you've got Jimmy Carter. 
Carter has developed a well-oiled national machine to win the election. He's been working on this for the past, what, two years. He, he appeals to both conservatives and liberals. He, he's a born-again Christian and a fiscal conservative who can reach out to evangelicals and those who feel the government, federal government's too big. As the governor of Georgia, he had developed a record as a progressive on civil rights and women's rights, which appealed to liberals. He talks about using uh, – talks about incorporating human rights into American foreign policy. Well, that appealed to both liberals and conservatives. Conservatives said, yeah, we can bash left-wing communist governments for violating the rights, violating the rights of their people. Um, and meanwhile, liberals said, yeah, we can use human rights to criticize these authoritarian right-wing governments for their repression. On top of all of this, you have the fact that Carter is portraying himself as an outsider who says, look, I'm untainted by the Washington bureaucracy. I'm untainted by all these scandals like Watergate, and I'm not someone who, like Nixon, and by extension Ford, because remember, Ford was Nixon's VP. I am not someone who, like Nixon, will lie to the American people. I will tell you the truth. For me personally, and this is what I talk about in the book, I think a lot of what I just talked about with regard to Reagan and certainly with Carter um, can fall under one heading as to why Ford lost, and that was image. As much as he tried, Ford could not escape from the image that, yeah, he's a really nice guy, but he's not terribly bright. He's the guy who pardoned Nixon. He's the guy who could not solve the nation's economic troubles. He's the guy who made that gaffe in the second debate and took days to clarify. He's the guy who never provided a vision of the, to the American people where he wanted to take it. And so Americans began to ask themselves, is he the right person at this time? And for a lot of them, the answer was no. Four years later, Ronald Reagan captures the Republican nomination, and at the convention, there's, at least for a brief time, talk about a so-called dream ticket of Reagan as president and Gerald Ford as vice president. Was Ford really interested in that possibility, and how in the world would that have worked in practice? I think Ford was interested. Um, he had actually been considering a run for the Republican nomination in 1980. Uh, the problem was what he wanted was for Republicans to come to him, kind of draft him rather than him going out and announcing his candidacy. And it wasn't until I think it was the spring of 1980 after a number of the delegates had already been – had already decided – had already been um, divvied out that Ford said, OK, I'm not going to run for the presidency. Um, some of the delegates have already been chose, have, have already decided who they're going to support. Plus, he feared that if he jumped in the race at that point, he would split the party vote, and that could help Carter. Now, he could have said at that point, "I have no desire to be president, and I have no desire to be anyone's running mate." He never said, "I have no desire to be anyone's running mate." So when Reagan comes along and floats the idea of Ford being his running mate, I think Ford really was interested. Now, there were a couple of issues. One is that under the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, the presidential candidate and his running mate cannot be from the same state. So, I mean, Reagan was from California. Ford had moved to California. Someone, probably Ford, would have to change their residency. But then there comes the other question, and it's the question you asked. Could it have worked? One of the people I, inter I interviewed for the book was uh, William Brock, who was the Republican National Committee chairperson that year. Brock felt that it would have worked, that Reagan would have run his presidency just the same way he ran it with George H.W. Bush as his VP. I'm not so sure. Ford wanted more power than traditionally was given to a VP. He made it clear, if I'm going to be your vice president, uh, uh, Mr. Reagan, well, Ronald, Ron, um, I want to be either chair of the National Security Council or I want to be your chief of staff. Those are both very powerful positions, and Reagan's view was, no, that's not going to happen. 
And that ultimately is what led the whole thing to fall apart is when Reagan said, I'm not going to give you that kind of power. It seems like it would have been very hard for Ford to have been president to take that second place. Just just from the, 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 the day in and day out business of being president. Sure. I think it would have been very hard emotionally or you know personally for him to do that. But a very interesting possibility. Now, we haven't talked yet about the amazing <clears throat> Betty Ford. Yes. How did – Gerald Ford's political career affect their relationship and vice versa. And what areas did Betty identify as her priorities? Well, his political career did take a, quite a toll on her. Um, she remembered what was it, October of 1946. They get married. At the time, Ford is running for the first time for for uh, that for the fifth district of Michigan. He's running for that house that house seat. He'd been campaigning that day and. Um, he has to rush. He has to change into his tuxedo for the wedding. Well, he changes so quickly that he forgets to change his shoes. So he arrives there at the chapel in his tuxedo with these dirty shoes and didn't make her very happy about that. Then they have a very short honeymoon. They get back home, and one of the first things he says to her is, Honey, could you make me a soup and sandwich because I have to go out and campaign again? And it was at that point she began to realize this is not what I expected. Um, from her point of view, and she talks about this, uh, she said, I, I thought that when you get married, uh, yeah, your husband's going to be working. You won't see each other during the day, but in the evenings you'll be able to spend time together and he'll be home on the weekends. Uh, but it didn't happen with Ford. He was out a lot, either campaigning or after elections. Uh, he is – in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol building doing business, um, or he's trying to support other Republicans. <clears throat> he's traveling thousands of miles every year. He's gone virtually every day. He tries to be home for Sunday dinners, um, and he did take the family out on an annual ski trip, but he's gone a lot. And then he becomes minority leader, and now he has additional responsibilities. Uh, Betty herself said when he became minority leader, that she had lost a husband. Truth be told, and this is one of the things that her one of her biographers says, is she'd already lost a husband. I mean, what she was expecting from that marriage is not what was happening. She's married to a workaholic, well, I should say an ambitious workaholic, who wants to climb the ladder of who wants to climb the ladder in the house to become house speaker. And so he is away a lot. Uh, when he's nominated, well, he, when he's nominated for the vice presidency, she recalled uh, people congratulating both her and and Gerald and, and her and Jerry, and she said at one point to someone who congratulated her, "Congratulations or condolences," because again she's afraid that he's again he won't be around. So she begins to look for an outlet, and she turns ever more to the bottle. Uh, she had a bad back and is getting it gets addicted to painkillers. And it's not until after the Fords leave the White House that she finally got the treatment she needed. As for her priorities, breast cancer awareness is probably the top of the list. Um, she got breast cancer. Um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, breast cancer shortly after Ford uh, was, uh, became president. And she worked really hard to bring attention to breast cancer, to making sure, for instance, women got, women got mama, mammograms. Uh, she supported passage of the Equal Rights Amendment for women. She endorsed, and she endorsed a woman's right to an abortion. Her views did cause some problems for her husband, especially as president. I think the best example of this was in 1975, when she famously has uh, an interview with Morley Safer for 60 Minutes. And she talks in that interview. She's very open. She says, I endorse Roe versus Wade, which, give, which uh, granted women the right to an abortion. She seemed to have no trouble with the idea of couples living together out of wedlock. She seemed okay with the fact that people might experiment with marijuana. And for many, especially in the political right, to talk about these things and to say they're okay was just infuriating. Um, the letters that came in just attacking her were, were numerous. Um, her husband, Jerry, at one point said to her shortly after the interview, and jokingly, but I would say probably half-jokingly, you cost me 10 million votes. Uh, no, you cost me 20 million votes. 
And the fact of the matter is, the interview did cause a firestorm for a time. After they left the White House, what were their priorities? What did they do after that, after those uh, very, very difficult years there? And what do you think President Ford's legacy is today? Sure. Um, His priorities support the Republican Party, including Republican candidates for the presidency, raise money for this museum and library. And he's been criticized for this last one, earn money for himself. He wanted to make sure that he was comfortable. For her, get treatment for herself and work to bring awareness to the dangers posed by alcoholism and drug abuse. She wanted to see the Equal Rights Amendment passed. She continued to support a woman's right to an abortion. Um, And I should point out, by the way, that um, it wasn't his desire to continue doing all of these things um, did cause some problems for them after they left the White House. It was not until, what, about 1979 that her husband finally realized just how much she was addicted to alcohol and painkillers. Uh, she had continued to turn to the bottle, continued to turn to the, the painkillers because he was still gone so much doing all of these other things. Um, I know I'm going off on a tangent there a little bit, but I just thought I should point that out. In terms of his legacy, um, I think unfortunately many people are going to see Ford, will still still see Ford as little more than a ter- caretaker president who kept the seat behind the desk in the Oval Office warm until Jimmy Carter sat in it, and really whose only accomplishment of, if anything, was to pardon Richard Nixon. And I personally think that's unfair. Um, I mentioned a bill on energy that was passed. Yes, it was the Democratic Congress that passed the bill, but Ford signed it. It was a bill that established the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It's a bill that called for companies to to place stickers in their appliances to designate how energy efficient they were. And there are some scholars who argue that this is evidence that Ford was America's first energy president. Um, Ford promoted deregulation uh, before and during his presidency, and that call for deregulation was continued by Presidents Carter and Reagan. It's also during Ford's term in office, his 895 days, that the United States and the Soviet Union signed the Helsinki Accords, which included language supportive of human rights. And there are some observers who argue that those accords, they say, uh, really helped to open the first cracks in communist control of not just Eastern Europe, but the Soviet Union. For me personally, if I see a legacy, and unfortunately it's one that we don't see much of today, it was one of bipartisanship. Uh, as an ex-president, he worked with Jimmy Carter on a variety of issues, showing his willingness to reach across party lines. Um, yes, he supported both as a he supported as a member of Congress, as a president, as an ex-president. He supported his party. He was loyal to his party, but he was a pragmatist who was willing to reach across the aisles and is prepared to compromise. The unfortunate thing is that those words, bipartisanship bipartisanship and compromise today, are often seen as dirty words, and it's really sad. Scott, it's time for some personal questions about POTUS number 38. This guy was the quintessential man's man, star college football player, Eagle Scout, immensely likable, smart guy. Did he have any personal faults? Other than maybe finding the good in everybody, did he have any personal <laughs> faults? Well, that's one of them. He he was naive. He, he was too prepared to overlook the bad to try to find the good. Uh, and we saw that with Nixon as an example. Um, he was stubborn. Uh, I mean, I mentioned how, how he took so long to make it clear to Al Haig a pardon was off the table. When he makes that gaffe on Poland... It took, it took several days before his advisors convinced him, you've got to clarify that remark. This is killing you. And the, the biggest reason why he was so reluctant to clarify the remark and admit he made a mistake was because it would play into the image of him as being an intellectual klutz. So, but, but it hurt him. His stubbornness hurt him there. And last but not least, his ambitiousness. He's not around a lot for his family. Uh, it was hard, not just on Betty, it was hard on their children. Um, yeah, he tried to be home for Sunday dinners. Yes, he tried. He held that annual ski trip with the family, but otherwise he's gone a lot. Um, his daughter, Susan, once said that 
it wasn't until I was age 10 or 12 that I realized I had a father. I mean, on, the, on those Sunday dinners, all I saw was I loved my father, but all I would see at these Sunday dinners is just this man sitting across the table. It was That really took a toll on the family. As you talked about earlier, he came into office under some terrible circumstances, mm-hmm. a resignation, a war, a good deal of inflation. What was it in his personal life that we're talking about that balanced all of these negative issues that he faced? What helped him stay sane? You know, I've been asked a similar question about this uh, in given current circumstances. Um, let's think about Joe Biden. He comes into office facing a worldwide pandemic, a politically polarized country, an outgoing president who's been impeached twice and is refusing to concede the election, and a nation suffering from a terrible economic downturn. And I think the way that Ford handled his situation is similar to what the way Biden has, is handling it. I think that Ford was very secure in who he was. He was confident in his abilities. Um, when, when he was asked by Hager that August 1st meeting, are you prepared to become president of the United States? Ford said yes, and he meant it. He was very confident in his abilities. And something else that I think helped Ford deal with all these issues, he was someone who didn't, who was not, who was, who was secure, not only his abilities, but just in who he was. He didn't need to be constantly told how well he was doing. And I mean, I, I feel like I have to bring this up. I still remember the in 2017, with the cameras rolling, what Donald Trump had members of his cabinet tell him how wonderful a job he was doing. Ford would have been apoplectic had he seen that. Your cabinet members should not have to tell you how good a job you're doing. You should know as President of the United States, you should be secure enough in your abilities that you don't need that constant reinforcement. So I think those two things, confidence abilities, but also a belief that you don't need someone constantly telling you you're doing a good job if you're confident in who you are. Those things helped him get through all of this. Interesting. Good point. You know, everyone has someone they look up to, and presidents are certainly no different. So who would you say was his favorite president? Who did he get inspiration from? Dwight Eisenhower. Mm. Dwight Eisenhower was his hero, a person who served this country during World War II and helped the United States, or helped the Allies to victory, uh, achieve victory, but also someone whose political views very much meshed with Ford's own. In fact, I think it would be very easy to say that Ford was an Eisenhower Republican before the term was even used. What would you say might be the proudest moment of his presidency? This may sound surprising, but I would say the pardon. Uh, It cost him dearly politically, but in his mind, it put Americans' attention on what he saw as more important matters and saved Nixon from what would have been a grueling trial. And I think what would further reinforce what I, what I know reinforced in his mind that that what he did was the right thing to do was the reassessment of the pardon that began appearing in the 1990s. Uh, even people like Richard Reeves, who had blasted Ford back in 1974, uh, the journalist Richard Reeves, who had blasted Ford back in 1974, now apologized and said it was a very brave decision. It was the right decision. Um, and Ford himself in 2001 received the Profiles and Courage Award for his decision. So I think for Ford, that would have been um, his proudest moment. He had done the right thing as far as he was concerned, despite everyone telling him it was wrong. And a lot of people probably would have answered my next question with that answer. (laughs) On the flip side of that, what do you think would have been his number one presidential do-over? Okay, not the pardon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, there are a couple that come to mind. One is being more cautious walking down the stairs of Air Force One. Um, but I would say, number one, not uh, committing that gaffe in that second debate. That gaffe on Poland came so close to election day and caught, hurt him so dearly. Had he not made that gaffe, I can't say he would have won. But certainly he would have done much better than he did. Finally, Scott, can you summarize in just a sentence or two his short presidency? Yeah. Somewhat controversial? Um, I would say this. Uh, Gerald Ford was a president, wrongly identified as little more than a caretaker, who sought to restore the integrity of the Oval Office at a time 
when faith in government was at possibly its lowest point in American history. Very good. Well, well put. Yeah. Scott, what's, uh, what's next for you? Uh, I am currently working on a comparative history of the Panama and Suez canals, uh, which is going to be a years-long project, but uh, I'm making some progress on it, and it's, it's a fascinating project to work on. And I get to include some of my Ford stuff in it. Okay. Oh, well, I, can't, I can't wait to read it. Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. This has well, been Scott, really interesting. Thank you. It has sure. been. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott, on American POTUS. Thank you. I very much, I've had a lot of fun doing this. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Scott Kaufman for joining us on this episode about Gerald Ford. More information on his book, Ambition, Pragmatism, and Party, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Jerry Ford. Quote, History and experience tell us that moral progress comes not in comfortable and complacent times, but out of trial and confusion. <laughs>